What you are listening to is just one part of a series created for the review of AP European history. If you're a student reviewing for your class or the AP exam, I suggest that you take notes. Perhaps you're a history buff and enjoy the subject matter. Either way, welcome and enjoy. On April 25, 1475, a 24-year-old Italian named Girolamo Savonarola knocked on the doors of the Dominican Order of their friar's preacher in Bologna, Italy. He requested entry into the order, seeking to become a Knight of Christ. During the years of his theological studies, Savonarola solidified his opinion against the secular direction of the church. In his sermons in Florence, he attacked property ownership of the church. He condemned tyrants who took away freedom of the people and he criticized the rich and powerful who neglected and exploited the poor. He complained of the evil lives of a corrupt church and clergy, saying, quote, In these days, prelates and preachers are chained to the earth by the love of earthly things. The care of souls is no longer their concern. They are content with the receipt of revenue. The preachers preach to please princes and be praised by them. They have done worse. They have not only destroyed the church of God, they have built up a new church after their own pattern, Go to Rome and see. In the mansions of the great prelates, there is no concern save for poetry and the oratorical art. Go thither and see. Thou shalt find them all with the books of the humanities in their hands, and telling one another that they can guide men's souls by the means of Virgil, Horace, and Cicero. The prelates of former days had fewer gold miters and chalices, and what few they possessed were broken up and given to relieve the needs of the poor. But our prelates for the sake of obtaining chalices, will rob the poor of their sole means of support. What dost thou, O Lord? Arise and come deliver thy church from the hands of the devils, from the hands of tyrants, from the hands of inequitous prelates." End quote. Savonarola also contradicted church dogma that salvation was guaranteed by faith and good works, promoting instead heavenly salvation by faith alone. He also preached the stance of sola scriptura, and called for repentance and renewal before the arrival of the divine scourge. Reverting to apocalyptic sermons, Savonarola preached about his visions and encounters with God and the Virgin Mary, declaring that a new Jerusalem would be made in Florence. Savonarola's promise provoked the Florentines to embrace a theocracy. Vice was targeted. Groups of boys and young men patrolled the streets to curb immodest dress and behavior, drunkenness, adultery, and sinful ways were all under attack. Processions, youth masses, and bonfires to destroy tools of sinning became commonplace. Girolamo Savonarola launched attacks against papal corruption and appealed for a general council to confront papal abuses. For these, and political reasons, Pope Alexander VI excommunicated Savonarola in 1497. One year later, tired of the promise of the city's godly renewal 
and life in a moral theocracy, Florentines arrested Savonarola and two others. They were tortured and found guilty of heresy. On the 23rd of May, they were hanged and their bodies consumed by fire. Savonarola, like his predecessors, Arnold of Brescia, Jan Hus, Peter Waldo, and John Wycliffe, was a reformer that unsuccessfully sought to rid the church of its secular ways. And as Savonarola was being led to his fate, a 15-year-old German boy named Martin Luther was attending high school, unbeknownst to him that in just 19 years, it would be his Protestant reform movement that would fracture the church forever. Let's take a look at some of the main questions we're going to be answering today. Number one, what was the social and religious background of the Reformation? Number two, what problems in the church contributed to the Protestant Reformation? Why was the church unable to suppress dissidents as it had earlier? Number three, why did Martin Luther challenge the church? Number four, where did other reform movements develop and how were they different from Luther's? Number five, what were the basic similarities and differences between the ideas of Luther and Zwingli? What about between Luther and Calvin? How do these different tenets affect the success of the Protestant movement? Number six, what were the political ramifications of the Reformation? Number seven, why did the Reformation begin in Germany? What political factors contributed to its success there as opposed to in France, Spain, or Italy? Number eight, how did royal dynastic concerns shape the Reformation in England? Number nine, why did Henry VIII break with Rome? What was the quote-unquote new church he established, and was it really Protestant? How did the English church change under his successors? Number 10, what was the counter-reformation, and how successful was it? And lastly, number 11, what reforms did the Council of Trent introduce? Was the Protestant Reformation healthy for the Catholic Church? Let's look at the background of the Reformation, both via social and religious. Since the late 14th century, the territorial rulers' law and customs had increasingly overridden local laws and local customs. As a result, many townspeople, village folk, were sensitive to the loss of traditional rights and freedoms. Their ally in the struggle to remain free and independent at the local level became the Protestant Revolt. Division in society also added to the Reformation. Guild masters and local princes, who were both interested in keeping or increasing their wealth or influence, were at the forefront of individuals who fought for the Reformation. They saw in the Reformation an opportunity to free themselves from autocratic local governments or powerful princes and kings. The Reformation also inspired the local townspeople. As Luther argued against the power of the Pope and papal laws as human inventions and promoted the priesthood of all believers— essentially to liberate the Congress of Believers from the hierarchy of the church, local townspeople sought to liberate themselves socially and politically from their secular and religious landlords. Many felt that their rights and freedoms, such as fishing or hunting, all the way through to representation of local governments, were slowly being chipped away. Let's look at some of the problems that the church was going through that helped contribute to the Protestant Reformation. And at this point, it might be helpful to picture the pre-Reformation church as a grand dam. The wall and the structure that holds back the water has been damaged by years of spiritual neglect. Additionally, 
cracks are starting to appear on the dam wall. And these cracks are perhaps entitled as the following. The first crack would be pluralism. Pluralism is the holding of multiple benefices or religious offices. Benefices were often sold to the highest bidder, often to people who were not from local areas. So for example, you could be an Italian priest and you could purchase a job, a religious office or a benefice in Germany or France. At the time, bidders could purchase multiple religious offices and collect money from multiple jobs and they would never have to appear at that new job. And this other crack became known as absenteeism. So the first crack would be pluralism. The second crack would be absenteeism or being absent from your job or your benefice. Imagine your AP Euro teacher having two teaching jobs in two different states at the same time. They would get paid for both jobs, but they could only appear to one. What would happen to the students at the other school? Would they be best served? Would they be taught correctly? Would there ever be a student-teacher bond that would exist? Probably not. I can imagine at the end of the school year, after never seeing your teacher, after being left to your own ability, your teacher appears on the last day of school, introduces themselves and says, hello, I'm your AP Euro teacher. Oh, hey, by the way, how did that AP Euro exam go? You might be a little upset. The third crack would be clerical ignorance. Absenteeism from bishops and archbishops and abbots and cardinals meant that the church officials were not keeping a watchful eye on the lower level priests, as well as their ability to serve the common people who enter the church, the lay people. Priests were ignorant, and some of them could barely read the Latin Bible. How can you go into a church, and there you are listening to the the sermon going on, and, and the priest can barely read the Bible? And as they're reading the Bible, they're saying, Domine, Domino, Domino Pizza. And the people in the front row are saying, did he just say Domino Pizza? This guy doesn't even know how to read. How can a layperson who is going in pious, being very religious, entering into a church, and it doesn't seem that the priests know how to preach or are interested or intelligent enough to preach? The, the sins of secularism also could be another crack in the dam. Uh, Some religious officials did not abide by the simple life of Jesus. Uh, Many priests were engaging in sexual affairs. Many had children. Others drank and gambled. So, so far we have a multitude of cracks. We have pluralism, absenteeism, clerical ignorance, and you can also say that some of the sins of secularism uh, were other cracks. So a final crack, and perhaps the widest crack in the dam, is the selling of indulgences. The practice of a selling of of an indulgence uh, permitted a person to buy a release time from purgatory for both themselves or for a deceased loved one. So if you have transgressed, you have committed a sin, you simply need to pay a priest. You go to confession, pay a priest, and you can have your time in purgatory reduced. So instead of spending 20 years in purgatory, you pay him 20 bucks and maybe you get 10 years off, something like that. And indulgences were actually nothing new uh, to the church during this time. Originally, they were offered to crusaders who couldn't complete their penance because they died in battle. And then in 1343, Pope Clement VI VI, added the treasury of merit. Uh, If needed, a person could purchase an indulgence to assist their own penance. And then eventually, Pope Sixtus in 1476 opened up indulgences to the unrepentant sins of all Christians in purgatory. So you can not only buy one for yourself, but you could also buy one for a deceased uncle, uh, your your dead father, perhaps. Uh, The selling of indulgences did create local revenue, 
And many rulers and magistrates did not stand against it because they were, of course, reeking in the money. They were taking in the money at the local level, at the city level. However, when those revenues eventually went overseas, when they left, they left, for example, Germany and they went to the Pope in Italy, oftentimes that's when resistance arose. Still going off of the scenario of the dam, let's say that the water that the dam is holding and restrains can be thought of the increasing pent-up pressure and frustration of the time period shared by lay people and clergy alike. Please remember that the Protestant Reformation could not have happened without the crisis of the Middle Ages. You know, in the first two weeks of school, you should have learned about the Avignon papacy, the Great Schism, the conciliar period, and the increasingly secular papacy of the Renaissance. All of these helped to create a church that had ceased to provide a proper foundation for religious piety. Moreover, many religious reform movements predated Luther and the Protestants. So from the 13th century to the 15th century, you have some of the Waldensians and the Hussites that shared common goals of reducing the secular support of the church, and they wanted to return the church to a more Jesus-based simplicity. Still going off this idea that the, of, the, of the damn scenario, that the water is the pent-up pressure and frustration from lay people and clergy alike, I think one of the questions has to be, what increased the lay people's activity to seek reform? What piqued their interest at this time? And a couple of things were happening. Uh, one of the first things that was happening was increase in travel of individuals. Uh, people of the time period could travel, let's say, from Italy to Germany or Germany to France or France to Spain or Spain to, to England. And with travel, you have an opportunity to see differences as well as similarities, right? But you can see different cultures, different approaches. You could see what you believe is to be a similarity of your church, that the church is supposed to be universal and everywhere, but perhaps when you go to another state, another city, another area, you might see differences. But then you also have differences of opinion. And so when people who have differences talk to one another, they start challenging opinions. They start challenging not only the opinion they're hearing, but also have an opportunity to challenge their own opinions of what's happening perhaps in their own territories. As well, new postal system and the printing press allowed for the increase of information. New books and libraries also raised literacy, and this heightened a sense of curiosity. You had an opportunity to know more, and you actually had the books and the libraries to find information. Uh, individuals were able to shape the world around them now, or at least increasingly able to shape the world around them. Additionally, lay people had a common goal of simple religion and the imitation of Jesus, right? The simplicity of simply imitating Jesus's life. They sought a church that promised and promoted self-sacrifice, equal opportunities, and perhaps most importantly for the lay people, a voice to its members. If the lay people have this pent-up frustration and nobody's listening to them, perhaps that pent-up frustration might lead to a revolution. So if they create a new church, they definitely want one where their voice would be heard. Why was the church unable to suppress dissonance as it had earlier, in earlier centuries? Well, one of the reasons why the church was unable to suppress dissonance as it had earlier with an example, Jan Hus, um, was because of the increasingly secular power of rulers and those rulers competing with the power of the church for political domin uh, domination. For years, kings challenged and suppressed the power of the papacy in their own lands, and no longer was the long arm of the pope able to extend into foreign land and to punish dissidents. Right? The uh, papal hand was now kind of slapped away by the kings who alone ruled and passed judgment in their own territories. Also, on the eve of the revolution, local judges and even the church began to restrict clerical privileges. 
Uh, secular rulers found ways to place the church under the tax code and end the church's right of asylum. Uh, the Reformation took place at a time of increasing nationalism as well, you know, even in you know, Luther's backyard. And we'll throw the word nationalism out or national feeling or even a local level to say that, uh, let's say, for example, if you're in, in Germany, that there's a sense of being German or perhaps maybe there's a sense of being uh, a, a person of Saxony. Um, a person of Prussia, and you know that because the Pope is in Rome, that he is a uh, um, not necessarily an Italian. There was no real Italy at the time, but he is a papist. He's in a foreign territory, and he doesn't think like us. He's not like us. He's in another land completely. And and Germany provided that land. The German land provided a perfect location for the rise of Luther. Let's take some time to look at Martin Luther himself and the timeline of his life and the events from his birth in 1483 through to 1521 of the Diet of Worms. Because by looking at the timeline of events, we can set up three major things, action, reaction, and then the rationale behind both of those. So we'll have an opportunity to kind of piece the puzzle pieces together and give an order to the life of Martin Luther and see exactly what is driving Luther's passion to break away from the church. So Martin Luther was born in Isleben, Saxony, uh, what would be currently Germany, but the Holy Roman Empire back in 1483. Uh, Luther's father Hans intended Martin to become a lawyer. Ha uh, Martin was the eldest son, and so the father wanted Martin to have an opportunity to become something proper, a proper lawyer. But in 1505, Luther was caught in a thunderstorm as he was walking back to his home. Uh, a lightning bolt hit near Luther, and Luther called out for help. He said, help me, St. Anne, I will become a monk. And apparently St. Anne helped him, and Luther kept his promise. In that same year, in 1505, Luther gave up becoming a lawyer and entered the St. Augustine Monastery. In 1510, Luther had an opportunity to visit Rome, and this is where Luther gets his first view of a big contrast, contrast of what his homeland of Saxony and Germany potentially looked like uh, at the lower level, at the local level, to what was happening in Rome with the hierarchy, the bishops, the cardinals, the archbishops, and of course the Pope, the hierarchy of the church in Rome. Luther had an opportunity to see the secular nature, the money-hungry nature that the church had become. And of Rome, this is Luther's words, he says, quote, where God built the church, the devil puts up a chapel next door. It is almost incredible. What infamous actions are committed at Rome? One would require to see it and to hear it in order to believe it. It is an ordinary saying that if there is a hell, Rome is built upon it. It is an abyss from whence all sin proceeds. Rome, once the holiest city, was now the worst. Let me go up, get out of this terrible dungeon. I took onions to Rome and I brought back garlic. End quote. In 1512, Luther earned his doctorate in theology and then eventually continued to teach at the University of Wittenberg. But when we're looking at the first major event, kind of in a timeline of Luther, 1515 is going to mark really the first action that took place. Pope Leo X, who was um, Pope at the time, authorized Archbishop Albert, who is a German archbishop, he resides in the area of, of Saxony, to sell indulgences, um, 
churchgoers, if they're going to be buying indulgences, churchgoers are going to be required to pay for repentance or forgiveness of their sins. And if they pay, they can get less time, of course, in uh, purgatory, or they can actually reduce uh, purgatory for their loved ones that are caught, uh, the ones that have passed before, a uh, father, mother, grandparents, somebody you loved. Now, what was the rationale behind the selling of indulgences back in Germany? One thing to note here is that indulgences came and went. So it's not that the Catholic Church or the Christian Church of the time period put up indulgences and then let it go. Indulgences came and went. So you might have a couple of months where indulgences were sold and then they went away. And it apparently seems that when the Christian church needs more money, that's when they start a new round of indulgences. And the rationale behind the selling of indulgences in 1515 was that the Archbishop Albert of Magdeburg, right, he was the administrator of the See of Halberstadt. He was the Archbishop of Mainz. That means that he held three positions. And if we remember on that imagery of the dam, one of the major cracks on that dam was pluralism. So here's Albert, the Archbishop Albert, that has three positions he purchased and is getting paid to work in three positions, but most likely really only attending one and not really caring about the other two. Now, it's not that the Archbishop Albert had money just laying around and he was buying positions left and right, even though they were wealthy, many of the archbishops they still had to borrow money in order to purchase a new position. And in this case, the Archbishop Albert purchased my, or um, took out a loan from a German family known as the Fuggers. And so he needed to pay back the loan. Of course, he needed to pay back the loan plus interest. And so seeing that there was, in one case, Albert needed to pay off the loan and the Pope, enter Pope Leo X again, Pope Leo also needed money to help him finish St. Peter's Basilica, the major church in Rome. And so the Pope and Albert both said, well, hey, you know what? How about we start another round of indulgences and a portion of the money, Albert, can be sent to for, for you to pay off the loan for the Fugger family. The other portion, what percentage, I'm not sure, but the other portion could go to the Pope and the Pope will take it and he'll use it to finish off St. Peter's Basilica. And so the indulgences were brought back up. Now, in 1515, this is happening in Luther's own backyard, right? Luther is in Wittenberg, Saxony. It's, it's happening within the same area that the uh, indulgences are being sold. Uh, the, Christian, the Catholic Church or the Christian Church of the time period actually sent out a, uh, a monk whose name is Johann Tetzel. Uh, he was a friar who was probably the best salesman, I guess you could put it, for selling indulgences he kind of had or is most noted as saying, as soon as the gold in the casket rings, the rescued soul from heaven springs or something like that. It wasn't a, a church statement. It was more attributed to uh, Johann uh, Tetzel. But he comes in and he starts his propaganda of selling indulgences and Luther notes it. And he's really frustrated and uh, outraged that it is happening. Number one, it's happening in general, but number two, it's happening in his own backyard. So in 1517, as a reaction, remember we're looking at action, reaction, as a reaction to the selling of indulgences, Luther writes his letter to Albert and then posts the same letter, which is basically his 95 theses, 95 reasons why the church has kind of gone off the rails, all the 95 things that the church is not doing that is supposed to be the basis of Christian life. Um, in his argument, he includes his beliefs against the selling of indulgences and even questions the uh, Pope's ability 
Uh, and it's really meant, the 95 Theses itself is meant to be a discussion upon the matter. I think oftentimes in, in a lot of more modern interpretations that Luther is seen as this man who is taking the 95 Theses and with anger, he puts it on the, the main door at Wittenberg Church and he pounds in with a hammer, the nail as if he's driving it into the heart of the church. Yeah, probably not. That seems to be a lot more propaganda for the, um, the Protestant aim. What he is attempting to do here, whether it is a letter he's sending to Albert or if he's actually posting it on the, the Wittenberg church doors, the 95 Theses is to open up a debate. Remember that Luther is a scholar. He's a professor. He wants to open up a discussion on the matter and have hopefully people listen and maybe some change might come out of it. And that's really Luther's rationale. Right? He felt that indulgences undermined the seriousness of the sacrament of penance, and it competed with the preaching of the gospel and downplayed the importance of charity in Christian life. Luther's saying that if you want to be charitable and you want to give money to the church, that's absolutely fine. But for the church to requirement, uh, require it as an opportunity to pay down your penance or pay down for your sins, that does not seem to be correct with the church teachings. Well, what exactly is Lutheranism? Right? What is the religion? What is the basis of the religion? What is it that Luther was preaching about, wrote about, that eventually broke away from the Christian church and helped to create a faith in and above itself? If we're looking at the dogma of Lutheranism, some of the earliest ideas are divided into three parts. Sola fide, sola scriptura, and sola gratia. So we'll look at all three of these and then some additional points in just a moment. So Sola fide. According to Luther, salvation comes from faith alone. It was, according to the church, two things that the church required, faith and good works. However, when Luther looked at the good works that were required by the church in order to obtain heaven, in order to obtain salvation, the good works that he witnessed were things like indulgences. The church were promoting this idea that you need to pay for your sins or to pay down your time in purgatory in order to gain into heaven. Well, that didn't seem to be good works, according to Luther. Luther envisioned good works as being more charity, where you take it upon yourself to be charitable and live a good Christian life or a life that is modeled after that of Jesus. So he removed or reduced, not removed, the concept of good works but promoted the idea from salvation, uh, from salvation being from faith alone, sola fide. In his work in 1520, The Freedom of a Christian, he actually goes into a bit of detail here uh, in this quote, and then he brings in the context of what he means specifically by good works. So it says, quote, The word is the gospel of God concerning his son who was made flesh, suffered and rose from the dead, and was glorified through the spirit who sanctifies. To preach Christ means to feed the soul, make it righteous, set it free, and save it, provided it believes the preaching. Faith alone is the saving and efficacious use of the word of God. According to Romans 10.9, quote, this is a quote within a quote, so this is from the Bible that Luther is quoting, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, end quote. Furthermore, another quote, Quote, Christ is the end of the law, that everyone who has faith may be justified. Romans 10.4. Again, in Romans 1.17, he through his faith shall uh, is righteous and shall live. End quote. 
Now, once again, Luther is a theologian. He is well-studied in his biblical scripture. And so if we notice here, it's not Luther just throwing out his ideas. I think this is what it is. He's referring to the Bible. This is a man who will constantly go back to the Bible and say, well, what does the Bible say? What does the presumed word of God, what does scripture tell us that is correct or the believed, uh, the, the idea of being correct by the word of God? And like I noted a moment ago, it's not that works are to go unnoticed. Uh, Luther kind of makes it a secondary role, whereas perhaps the, the church was promoting both uh, or faith as well as good works. In the same work later on, Luther clarifies his view on works. He says, quote, our faith in Christ does not free us from work, but from false opinions concerning work. That is from the foolish presumption that justification is acquired by works. Faith redeems, corrects, and preserves our consciousness. So we know that righteousness does not consist in works, although works neither can nor ought to be wanting. Just as we cannot be without food and drink and all the works of this mortal body, yet our righteousness is not in them, but in faith. And yet those works of body are not to be despised or neglected on that account. So once again, this idea that works are not a necessity to guarantee salvation. But according to Luther, you can have faith, but faith without good works on your own charity, living like Jesus, then we'd be dead. So you have to also you have to believe, but also model it within your good works. But it should not be a requirement. I think Luther even went to the extreme to say, this is kind of a backdoor into heaven if good works allow you salvation, because you can be a terrible individual. You can sin and sin and sin and simply just pay your way into heaven. And that seems in a religious standard and this idea of a deity um, that if you are simply to pay in through, let's say, the backdoor, then you're taking advantage of an omnipresent, omnipowerful God. Number two, so second of the three solas would be the idea sola scriptura. So sola scriptura translated means scripture alone or only scripture. According to Luther, authority rests in the word of God as revealed in the Bible alone as as interpreted through, by an individual's conscience. So much like you noticed in the quote, Luther is reflecting back to the Bible. He's using the biblical phrases and the biblical sentences to create his argument to support his argument, this idea of faith alone. So sola scriptura. Another part of the sola scriptura, uh, sola, the, the only, that is important is that it can be interpreted by an individual's consciousness, whereas the church was promoting the idea that a priest, uh, the pope, the cardinals, the archbishops, the hierarchy of the church were the ones that could read the Bible and interpret the words according to God, according to Jesus. And so what you have here is Luther is distancing himself from that requirement that you need a priest or you need the Pope or you need somebody in the hierarchy of the church to read the book and interpret it for you. Uh, Luther is promoting this idea that everyone is a member of the church and everyone, because we are created in God's eyes, according to Luther, or in God's image, according to Luther, that God gives us this opportunity to read the scripture and understand it for our own. We can interpret it using our own brain, our own consciousness. Number three, the last of the solas would be sola gratia. And this is the idea that the church consists of the community of believers. Hence, everyone, regardless of vocation, should serve God. Whereas the church promoted more of the concept that the hierarchy 
uh, the ones who had a, Bibli- uh, a, a Christian title of priest, nun, bishop, archbishop, cardinal, monk, pope, that they were kind of the community of believers and everyone else was a witness, uh, was a lay person that was attempting or attending church. According to Luther, it does not matter if you're dressed, if you've been ordained a priest. Everyone, according to Luther, is a priest. And uh, he he uses in this a, a, uh, an argument that I think is, is actually pretty spot on here. This one comes from the same reading as previous in 1520, where he's talking about the, uh, the freedom of a Christian. He's promoting this idea of the interpretation of the Bible. I think this one goes pretty well with our third point. And so we're looking at it, it says, quote, they, he's talking about the Roman Catholic popes, want to be the only masters of scripture. They assume sole authority for themselves and would persuade us with insolent juggling of words that the Pope, whether he be good or bad, cannot err in matters of faith. They cannot produce a letter to prove that the interpretation of scripture belongs to the Pope alone. They themselves, once again referring to they the Popes, they themselves have usurped this power. And though they allege that this power was conferred on Peter when the keys were given to him, it is plain enough that the keys were not given to Peter alone, but to the entire body of Christians. And he quotes eventually Matt 19 and 18, 18, uh, 16, 19 and 18, 18. He continues on to say every baptized Christian is a priest already, not by anointment or ordination from the Pope or any other man, but because Christ himself has begotten him as a priest in baptism. So according to Luther, end quote there, according to Luther, baptism alone gives you the opportunity to read from the scripture and be the equivalent of, let's say, maybe what the Christians at the time might say would be a priest because you've been baptized, not because somebody touches you on the shoulder and says that you now have some sort of degree, but because we're made in God's image and we've been baptized and we're in the church, we should be able to read much like anybody else should be able to read. And even goes on uh, later later on to talk about uh, a what-if scenario. I think is actually quite interesting. He talks about this. What happens if there's a small group of people who were, let's say, abandoned on an island or got lost and ended up on an island, and they wanted to continue to worship, but there wasn't a priest amongst them? Well, what would happen? Could the word of God not be read? Could mass not continue uh, if there was a couple who wanted to get married, could nobody marry those individuals? And Luther says no, probably because the community of individuals who will be on that island will probably look at one another and say, hey, look, it's important for us that we continue to worship. Um, we elect that person or this person, whether married or not married, to continue practicing the word of God. Uh, in, in the opposite scenario, perhaps in Luther's argument, if there was no priest and the Christian church was promoting this idea that you need a priest in order to read the Bible. You need a priest in order to provide the sacraments. Then that that group of people could not continue to be worshipers. They might be a flock of sheep without a sheep herder or some sort of priest to interpret the word and continue their faith. And according to Luther, that seems to be quite uh, ridiculous. So the three fedes or the three solas, excuse me, once again, sola fede, sola scriptura, in sola gratia, faith alone, scripture alone, and grace alone. Once again, the idea of sola gratia, that you don't need to be a hierarchy member of the church, that the church consists of the complete community of baptized believers. So everyone, regardless of their job or their vocation, 
is, uh, is in service to God. Uh, number four, there is no hierarchy of the church. Pretty much if, you, if you're looking at Lutheranism, and I don't want to simplify it, but I think a, a way of kind of um, making it a l- perhaps a little bit easier to understand might be um, Catholicism. And I, and I know I'm, I'm making a big leap here, and please don't, don't call me out on this, but Catholicism minus the Pope. Catholicism minus the hierarchy. And I know that's real simplistic to say because there's ideas of transubstantiation, consubstantiation, sacraments. And, but if you, Luther is really bent to drive the idea that there needs not to be a hierarchy because it's within the hierarchy that he sees much of the sinning taking place. It might not be happening on the local level, let's say with uh, members of the lay people who are uh, decent people wanting to go to church, wanting to understand the Bible, wanting to participate in their faith. But he sees it, that the sin of the hierarchy as being the main um, evil that must be reduced. So if we're looking at two parts, the people are good, the hierarchy is bad. Well, if you remove the hierarchy and you allow the people to read the Bible, interpret the Bible, continue their mass, then you're allowing the community of believers to continue on what the assumptive view of the church should have been modeled after Jesus. According to Luther, this would be a fifth point. There are two major sacraments and one perhaps additional rite. The two major sac- uh, sacraments are baptism and the Eucharist, whereas the Catholic Church says that there's seven sacraments. Penance, the the idea of uh, asking for forgiveness. Uh, if, you, if you're Catholic or you know somebody who's Catholic, usually when you go into penance, it's one-on-one with a priest and you declare that you are sorry for your sins and then there is some sort of a prayer that needs to be done you might tell you hey go say three hail marys or ten our fathers and you ask for forgiveness so in this case luther is saying you know we don't need a priest to ask for forgiveness Um, the priest is no longer a middleman Uh, as an individual person who is a member of the church you can ask for forgiveness directly from god you don't need to uh, open up your heart and open up your soul or somehow confess your sins to one individual. And then that blessing upon you would then say, okay, well, now your your sins have been forgiven. So Luther says two major sacraments, baptism, Eucharist, and penance, maybe a third, but more of a rite of penance. And then number six, the last one here would be consubstantiation, right? Catholics believe in transubstantiation of the Eucharist. Luther is promoting consubstantiation. According to Catholicism, the Catholics, when the body and blood are given during the time of the Eucharist, that the Catholics believe that the body and blood, the bread and the wine gets transformed, transubstantiation, that it is just a piece of bread and wine, but during the ceremony that they actually become the body and blood of Jesus. According to Luther, there is no transubstantiation. There's no transformation because God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. The bread and blood are made up of of Jesus, but there's no transformation. It doesn't instantly, because somebody rings a bell, transform the bread bread into the body and the blood or the wine into blood. So in summary, we have sola fide, faith alone, sola scriptura, only the scripture, Sola gratia, that you only need the grace of God. You don't need to be a priest or have a title. That there is no hierarchy of the church. 
There's only two to three sacraments, depending if penance is going to be considered a rite. And then the idea of consubstantiation, that there is no transformation of the body and blood of Christ. The rationale behind this, the reasoning behind it, is to break away from the power of a corrupt church and place the power of the church into the hands of God's people. Also in 1518, the elector of Saxony will eventually protect Luther. Frederick III, who's the elector of the state of Saxony or the leader of the state of Saxony, wants to provide Luther a safe haven within his realm. Um, if it is that Luther, who now has kind of thrown a couple of pebbles into this calm water of the church and those pebbles have created ripples and those ripples are becoming waves, there could be a possibility that, that Luther, in a, in a couple of ways, might be something beneficial for Frederick III in the state of Saxony. He's already a teacher and an educator, uh, a university professor uh, at Wittenberg. And so you know, Frederick has the opportunity to have Luther continue to profess at the university level. But Frederick also wants to make sure that Luther is not just handed over to the papacy in Rome and they might potentially harm him or kill him, but offer protection for a fair trial. At least that's the, the concept behind it. But there might be a more um, monetary rationale behind it eventually, as we'll see. In 1519, Luther will debate Johann Eck in Leipzig. Uh, Luther debates the German Catholic Johann Eck on indulgences, purgatory, and infallibility of the Pope, and as well as the concept of general counsel. For example, if the Pope says that there's something wrong with the church, that only the Pope is the one who can create a council. Uh, nobody else can say, hey, Pope, you're wrong, so we need to create a council to uh, right the wrong of the church. Um, the idea here was to have an educated panel decide who was right, Luther or in this case, Johann Eck, who's going to be arguing on behalf of the church. And Eck was really attempting to uncover Luther as a heretic. They knew one another, and actually Eck was really friendly with Luther until this part where Luther had this falling out or trying to distance himself from the church. After the debate takes place, two universities are supposed to pass judgment, the University of Erfurt in Germany and the University of Paris. But Erfurt recused itself and eventually pulled out and Paris was the one who passed a negative judgment on Luther. Luther lost the debate. Now, Luther, mostly during his debate, keeps reflecting on the idea of the Bible. If you can show me where in the Bible I'm wrong, then I will kind of give up my position. And it becomes difficult for Eck to do so. Uh, at some point, Luther does say that he might be a heretic, but it doesn't matter. Uh, and that might have been uh, the nail in the coffin. But when Paris does pass the judgment, when the University of Paris does pass the negative judgment that Luther is the loser of this debate, they don't actually reference the debate. So there's a lot of people who ask the question, well, how exactly do we know Luther lost? And there's some people who I think um, even some students of mine who've brought up this idea that perhaps there's a lot to be lost here for the professors of the University of Erfurt as well as Paris. Because if judgment is passed in favor of Luther, that would mean that Luther's correct in Johann Eck and the church is wrong. And that means that the church, this powerful institution being shown as being wrong, ugh, you know, especially people in power, organizations of power don't want to be shown that they're wrong. And perhaps the church might pass a judgment of its own upon those professors of the universities who pass judgment in favor of Luther. So it could be a lot of pressure at the time weighing down upon the debate, but Luther is shown to be 
at least the judgment is passed against Luther that he lost the debate. The reaction to this um, in 1519, despite the loss of the debate, Luther is going to continue to rally public opinion between 1519, 1520, 1521. He's going to continue to preach and continue to print countless articles on the church, on his view of the church and his understanding of the church and of the Pope and the momentum of where the church in his eyes are heading. The rationale behind it is to uh, understand where the church is heading. And Luther is building more uh, momentum towards his side of the debate, as well as starting to draw attentions from some of the German princes, most notably the man who protected him in the first time, uh, first time uh, Frederick III of Saxony. And there might be a reason why the German princes want to choose to convert to Lutheranism and maybe move away from the church. In 1520, after already from 1517 to 1520 years have passed, it seems that Luther is not going away, but that potentially those little ripples are now becoming waves in this pond after Luther is now kind of dropped the bomb with the 95 Theses. Uh, Luther is officially excommunicated in 1520. That means that Luther is kicked out of the Christian church. And when you're excommunicated, that means that there is no salvation for you. There is no coming back and being allowed to go into heaven. So this is pretty much damnation for Luther. The Pope wanted to send a message. So here's the rationale behind it. The Pope wanted to send a message not only to Luther, but anyone else who was thinking about converting to Lutheranism or being on his side or providing protection, that Luther is a damned individual. And if you side with Luther, be careful because the same idea of excommunication might fall right into your lap. In 1520, after being presented with the excommunication decree, Luther destroys it. But he destroys it in an interesting way. He does it publicly. He burns the decree publicly. He doesn't do it in his uh, chamber. He doesn't do it in a fireplace and just light it and you know maybe even drinking some hot cocoa or something in, in Germany and Saxony at the time. He does it publicly. And the rationale behind him doing it publicly is that Luther wanted others to witness that the Pope the church, the argument that he's trying to create that these are the evil people held no real control over Luther or anyone for that matter. So for Luther as an individual to light a papal excommunication decree, that paper, according to Luther, doesn't mean anything to him because according to Luther and his beliefs, the church is in each one of those people and including himself. It's not some man who lives in Rome who's going to tell me if I belong or don't belong or my ideas belong or don't belong. He's trying to show publicly that Luther himself, as well as everyone there within the community of believers, has power, not the Pope. Continuing on, 1520 to 1521, Luther becomes an ecclesiastical outlaw. He's decreed as an outlaw. Um, this means that wherever he is in Europe, uh, the, the Christian church and everyone else is not to offer any help, guidance, salvation, housing, you name it, protection. The church wants everyone to distance themselves. So it's already bad enough that Luther, at least in the, the, the view of the church, it's already bad enough that Luther has been excommunicated. But now if he becomes an ecclesiastical outlaw, that means that anyone could target Luther. Anyone could kill Luther without any consequence. So notice what the church is doing now. The church, perhaps on the brink of being pulled apart and the brink of having Europe divided 
and we're not just talking about one division, we'll eventually be talking about multiple divisions, but the Lutherans of Central Europe and Northern Europe breaking away from the Christian slash Catholic Church, that's going to be a nightmare scenario. So much power is going to be lost, so much privilege, so much authority over Europe is going to be gone overnight, and the church is afraid of it. So the church excommunicates, kind of like step by step, excommunicates Luther, and then maybe takes a further step and says, oh, no, not only is he excommunicated, but he's also an ecclesiastical outlaw, which pretty much means, hey, kill the guy. And if anyone was to kill Luther, that would be without legal consequence. So you can murder Luther and get away with it. The church would not eventually pass judgment on you. This is how how much of a thorn in the side Luther has become to the church, to the point where the church want him out. They want him completely gone. And maybe if he is murdered, if he's killed, then things might go back to normal. No, they're not going back to normal. 1521 also is the Diet of Worms, and this is where we're going to be ending this section. The Holy Roman Emperor Charles V asked Luther to show up at the Diet of Worms for kind of a final discussion, the final opportunity for Luther to recant. Um, he is he would be eventually denied legal protection if he did not recant. And here at the Diet of Worms, same type of opportunity that's kind of provided for Luther. Uh, Luther uses the Bible constantly and reflects upon the Bible and says, look, if anybody can show me in this Bible, sola scriptura, only in the, the book, only in the scripture, where I'm wrong on my opinions on the Pope, on my opinions on councils, on my opinion on indulgences, on my opinions of simony or a pluralism, then I will recant. And it seems to be that nobody can pull out a good word from the Bible to argue against uh, Luther, but uh, Luther does not recant, and eventually, uh, as he is, uh, as Germany is really on the, the brink of a mass revolt, uh, Charles V is really hoping to put an end to the debate, because this is his empire. His empire is in the middle of a, of a revolt, and he is the Holy Roman Emperor trying to keep the puzzle pieces of what would be currently Germany from fracturing any further. And while one evening Luther is being uh, driven away. Frederick of Saxony will come in and kidnap Luther. So St. Frederick, Frederick III of Saxony, the elector of Saxony, will kidnap Luther, and he will end up sending Luther uh, into kind of a hiding position. He's going to go up uh, high into a monastery, and he's going to be given a fake name. I think he grows a beard as well. Uh, and he's going to be staying up there for a while until maybe cooler heads prevail on one part, maybe for the, uh, the church, everybody kind of calms down. And perhaps maybe that there is something in it for Frederick of Saxony or some of the other leaders of Germany, some of these electors or these small level princes, that Luther remains alive and there might be something in it for them if they could convert to Lutheranism. Let's move away from Luther for a little bit. We'll come back to him and kind of conclude the story of the Protestant Reformation. But now let's take a look at some of the other protesting fates that developed around the same period the same time period as when Luther, or maybe even a little bit after it, when Luther was breaking away from the Christian church. And the first one we're going to look at is Calvinism, which was created by John Calvin. John Calvin was born in France in 1509. And by 1530, when Calvin converted to a protesting faith, French Protestants were being targeted by the Catholics in France. And so Calvin, as well as some other French Calvinists or French Protestants, fled to Basel. And eventually he found his way to Geneva. He was expelled from Geneva. Uh, he was invited to go preach in Strasbourg. And then eventually in 1541, 
the city of Geneva requested for him to come back. And this is really in uh, Geneva becomes the, the hotspot or the uh, location for Calvin. In 1536, Calvin publishes the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And it's here where he writes about an all-powerful and sovereign God and the weakness of man. Calvin says that in front of God, men and women are as insignificant as grains of sand. And the only way to arrive to even contemplating or understanding God was through the scripture. And then there's similarities there, right? Sola Scriptura, the only way to understand God is through the scripture with Luther. Uh, like Luther, he also believed in consubstantiation of the Eucharist, so not transubstantiation. Calvin and Luther both believe that there is no transition or transformation, that there is an omnipresence of God, and so he must be, the presence must be in the bread and in the wine. And Calvin also promoted two sacraments, which was similar to that of Luther, baptism and Eucharist. And yes, we did talk about a third, potentially uh, penance being a third one for Lutheranism. But once again, it's two major ones and perhaps a rite of penance that the Lutherans would believe in. One of the biggest differences was Calvin's doctrine of predestination. According to Calvin, men and women lacked free will. And men and women were not equal. I don't mean that men versus women, but all men and women were, were not equal. Some were considered to be part of the quoted word elect or a group chosen by God for eternal life, while all others were meant for eternal damnation. So that's a major difference. Luther does not bring up this idea of predestination, right? Anybody can arrive at heaven by faith alone, as well as not only the faith alone, but doing charitable good works, right? The, the good deeds are, are part of it. You don't need to do them as far as paying for them, but um, that if you do, you, you believe that the good works also assist as well. Um, Calvin says, quote, all are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation. And accordingly, as each has been created for one or other of these ends, we say that he has been predestined to life or to death, end quote. Under Calvin's Geneva, the city became a high moral standard, but also a theocracy. Those who did not adhere to Calvinism were often banished from the city. Others were found guilty of heresy, adultery, blasphemy, and witchcraft. And those who were, were killed. Calvin's ethic of calling, uh, the, the idea of calling, drew importance from all forms of work of religious aspects. So hard work pleased God, according to Calvin. And this work ethic drew attention from many nobles and merchants in France, in Scotland, in England, and even later on in colonial America. Another of the Reformed churches that developed during the time of Luther was known as the Swiss Reformed Church. This church was developed against the backdrop of a very hot and contested and increasingly nationalistic Swiss Confederation. The leader of this movement was Ulrich Zwingli. He was ordained a priest in 1506, and he started out his ministry in 1519. In 1522, Zwingli publicly shared sausages during the fasting period of Lent. And taking a page out of Luther's book, Zwingli stated that because there was no valid rule concerning food in the Bible, hence, to break the rules should not be considered as a sin. The quote-unquote affair of the sausages, as it was known, was his first act against the church. Zwingli followed his sermons advocating for the abolishment of clerical celibacy. He attacked church officials for their high living. He questioned the power of papal excommunication and even attacked the act of tithe or the mandatory church tax. By the mid-1520s, a radical wing of the Protestant reform in Switzerland, known as the Anabaptists, 
disapproved of Zwingli and began baptizing adults in Zurich. This resulted in many open clashes between the two sides. Anabaptists who were found baptizing adults were punished by death. Many were beaten, drowned, or burned. In October of 1529, Luther and Zwingli and other reformers met at Marburg Castle in Hesse in Germany. Although Luther and Zwingli agreed on 14 points, including infant baptism, the meaning of the term mass, and their rejection of transubstantiation, each of these examples have in fact little, little details, differing details, it was the 15th point that Luther and Zwingli could not see eye to eye. Ultimately, that 15th point cost the potential union between the two reformed sects. And while Luther affirmed that the Eucharist was held indeed, uh, held indeed the real presence of Jesus, because according to Luther, Jesus is omnipresent, meaning he is everywhere, he's present everywhere, um, Zwingli denied that Jesus could be in two places at once. So according to transcripts that were taken that day, the confrontation became really heated, and even Luther went to the extreme of warning Zwingli. Zwingli and Luther were going back and forth, and Zwingli said, ah, this this 15th point, uh, it kind of burns or it stings you. And um, Luther warned Zwingli not to be so proud, and he, he told Zwingli that uh, this is Hesse. Remember that you're in Hesse, you're in uh, Germany, you're not in Switzerland, as uh, a warning to uh, to kind of strike down your pride. Now, staying in Switzerland for another one of the Protestant Reformed groups, in 1527, a group of Swiss Anabaptists met along the Swiss and German border to set forth their principles of the faith. The principles included their belief in consubstantiation, which the Lutherans agreed, and their belief in nonviolence. Of the principles, the most notable, the most different was their view on baptism. While other Christians baptized their children into the faiths, this includes Lutherans, Calvinists, and Catholics. Anabaptists believe that baptism should be administered to those who have consciously repented. Right? They've repented for their sins. They've amended their lives, and they believe that Christ has died for their sins and who request it for themselves. They request baptism for themselves, meaning adults, right? children, babies oftentimes baptized in the Lutheran or Calvinist or Catholic faiths. They do not raise their hand and say, yes, I'd like to be baptized. Many of them are too young. The Anabaptists see that baptism should be an adult stepping forward and asking for themselves to be entering into the church. Now, the Anabaptists almost never forced their values on others. They admitted women into the ministry. They refused all public offices and preached Christianity as a religion of nonviolence. Their populations were made up of poor, unemployed, uneducated individuals, fearing, however, that the promotion that the Anabaptists had of separation of church and state would ultimately lead to a secularization of society, in addition to perceived social and economic disturbances in many city-states, including Saxony, Strasbourg, and the Swiss cities. The Reformed religions ousted or killed many of the Anabaptists. And today, there's about 4 million Anabaptists that live across the world. Many reside in smaller groups, but the largest are known as the Mennonites, German Baptists, and the Amish. Now that we've had an opportunity to look at the different sects that developed during the Reformation, such as Lutheranism, we looked at a timeline of Luther from 1515 all the way through to the Diet of Worms. We had an opportunity to look at the Calvinists, the Anabaptists, the Swiss Reformed Church. Let's dive a little deeper into some of the more important questions of the Reformation. Talk about consequences. What were the political ramifications or consequences of the Reformation? Well, Luther knew that without the support of the German princes, 
wealthy German princes, influential German princes, that the Reformation would not succeed. Luther, around 1520, he starts writing and stirring within his writing the patriotic feelings of the German people uh, against Rome, specifically against the papacy. In 1520, Luther writes his appeal to the Christian nobility of the German nation, and he called upon German princes in this writing to confiscate papal lands and church wealth that laid within their own, within the German princes' own states. He implored those princes to abolish indulgences, privileges, pardons, and clerical celibacy. Luther equated the Pope's presence in Germany to that of financial robbery. Luther says, quote, How comes it that we Germans must put up with such robbery and such extortion of our property at the hands of the Pope? If the kingdom of France has prevented it, why do we Germans let them make such fools and apes of us? It would be all the more bearable if in this way they only stole our property, but they lay waste to the churches and rob Christ's sheep of their pious shepherds and destroy the worship of the word of God. As it is, they do nothing for the good of Christendom. They only wrangle about in the incomes of bishoprics and prelacies that any robber could do, end quote. And with words like that, I think it's pretty clear to start to understand what Luther is attempting to do here by stirring the nationalistic or, once again, patriotic feelings of the German people against the papacy. And of the people who were reading from those documents, the ones who were listening most intently were, of course, the German princes, because politically, the Reformation resulted in the independent rise of German princes. There was something for the princes to gain if they took on Lutheranism within their state. German princes did indeed convert to Lutheranism because of their heartfelt devotion to the Reformed faith. However, there are others that understood the political, religious, and financial, the monetary, the money boom that would arrive with conversion. German princes that chose Lutheranism would now have the power to control the local churches within their state. No longer would Germans look towards distant Rome for religious guidance. This authority now fell onto the lap of the willing prince. And not to be overstated was the prince's financial appeal of Lutheranism. Princes now controlled the former church lands in their state. Princes could use the land for farming and reaping the rewards. All the buildings that were once owned by the church are now property of the prince. The prince could keep or sell the property and whatever funds he made, uh, use them to protect the state or do what he wanted with them. Additionally, the church tax no longer went to the Pope, but rather to the hands of the prince. With this new increase in wealth, princes could expand their own personal influence and increase the protection and livelihood of their German citizens, or just get wealthy. Examples of German princes that converted to Lutheranism include Philip of Hesse and John of Saxony, but perhaps the best example of a German noble that reaped major political and monetary or financial reward because of his conversion was Albert of Prussia. Albert converted Prussia from a Polish tributary state to a fef in which Albert now became duke. With the new church money in his hands, Albert increased the wealth of his court, he established schools in every city, And he definitely, with the money that he gained, won favor with the Prussian landed elites. Luther's words of religious liberation not only caught the eye of German princes who were looking to increase their wealth and their influence, but it also caught the attention of many German peasants. For years, the social and working conditions for German peasants had been deteriorating. 
And then crop failures in 1523 and 1524 only exacerbated troubles. In 1525, a group of Southern Germans known as the Swabian Peasants met together and created what they call the 12 Articles. These articles stated that German landlords had confiscated village common lands, imposed new rents, and seized the peasants' best cows and horses. And they did this. They wrote the 12 Articles, all while quoting scripture to support their position. Originally, the peasants here are trying to send a uh, send out a message to Luther. Right? If Luther could back the peasants, or better yet, if the peasants could get Luther to back their position, there might be an opportunity for the peasants to gain something remarkable, perhaps gain some of that freedom back, gain some of that support back. Initially, Luther did back the peasants, but as fighting started and it started to spread from Switzerland to Germany, Luther reversed his position and he threw his support to the nobles and the landlords. Uh, Luther in his writing known as uh, Against the Robbing Murderous Hordes of the Peasants, I think that title alone gives you an idea of what he eventually felt about the peasants. He encouraged the nobility and the landlords to swiftly and violently eliminate the rebelling peasants, stating, quote, the peasants must be sliced, choked, stabbed secretly and publicly by those who can, like one must kill a rabid dog, end quote. Close to 100,000 peasants are thought to have perished during the peasant wars. Luther's eventual position was based on his view of political order. Luther saw his own rebellion from the papacy, not through a political, but rather a religious lens. Luther preached the subjugation of the church to the order of the state. So the church was under the state, much like peasants were subjects to the lords. Any rebellion against the political powers would result in damnation. The peasant revolt only strengthened secular authority in the position of the princes, but it did lead to some moderate gains, such as some of the common lands being returned for the peasants and for all use. On a side note, however, I can't help but think of what Luther might have lost if he would have continued to support the peasants through the peasant revolt. Perhaps protection and support from the wealthy princes who allowed Luther the ability to set forth his religious, social, and political views, uh, because without those princes, Luther would not have had the platform to preach as well as he did. After the peasant revolts, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V pursued a policy of reconciliation with the Lutherans. In 1530, the Lutheran princes drew up the Osberg Confession of 28 Articles that detailed the beliefs of Lutheranism and presented it to Charles at the Diet of Osberg. The emperor strongly rejected it. In 1531, the Schmaldic, Schmalkaldic, After the peasant revolts, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V pursued a policy of reconciliation with the Lutherans. In 1530, the Lutheran princes drew up the Osberg Confession of 28 Articles that detailed the beliefs of Lutheranism, and they presented it to Charles at the Diet of Osberg. The emperor strongly rejected it. In 1531, the Schmalkaldic League, a religious military alliance, was formed by the Protestant princes, and Charles recognized the League in 1532. A stalemate ruled the following years until Protestant princes began occupying Catholic ter territories in Saxony. Charles V then outlawed the Smokaldic League and defeated the League at the Battle of Molberg in 1547. 
1552, the Second Smokalic War began. This time, Charles V was forced to flee, and in 1555, Charles instructed his brother Ferdinand to sign the Peace of Augsburg in his name. Under this agreement, German princes had the right to choose between either the Lutheran or Catholic faiths. Another question we have to ask is, why did the Reformation begin in Germany? What political factors contributed to its success there, as opposed to France, Spain, or Italy? Well, Germany lacked the political unity to enforce national reforms, as had England and France in the Middle Ages. Both England and France had government structures that had limited papal jurisdiction and taxation. Germany on a map appeared as a mixed-up patchwork of states, and each state had its own prince and duke, who were looking to expand their own power, all while being under the umbrella authority of an emperor. As the Reformation spread from state to state, the lack of national union and the further creation of a divided empire based on religious lines cost the empire any potential further cohesion. In Spain, the Inquisition and the rise of an anti-Erasmus Spanish court often meant that if there were Protestants in very small amounts, if they did exist in Spain, most notably Juan de Valdez, that they oftentimes fled to other lands to try to flee themselves or free themselves of persecution. Places like Italy were not going to be really uh, a location where the Reformation was going to take place. Number one, you had an enormous political power in the hands of the Pope. Uh, all of Italy was not Pope-controlled territory, but many of the independent states that existed were on the side of the Pope. You had huge amount of support for the Counter-Reformation that went against Protestantism. And according to uh, the revolts that took place by the sacking of Rome in 1527 by Protestant soldiers, um, Rome got sacked in 1527, and when the Protestant soldiers came in, they started mocking the papacy, mocking Christianity as far as the Catholic version of it. They started committing atrocities, and so for many of the Italians, when they thought of Protestantism, they saw it as being foreign, and they saw it as being something that is terrorizing and terrifying. Till now, we've had an opportunity to look at different sects of the Protestant faiths that started to develop in Europe. Uh, there is one that is missing. And that is the English Reformation, the Church of England, also known as the Anglican Church. So let's take a moment to dive into that. While Luther's arrival to the Reformation came from his heartfelt position in promoting the values of Jesus, all while calling out the sins of the church, the arrival of the Reformation in England came by the way of King Henry VIII's demands for a divorce. Henry's first wife was Catherine of Aragon, and she was the daughter of Queen Isabel and King Ferdinand. Catherine was indeed the wife of Henry's older brother, Arthur. When Arthur died, Henry married his sister-in-law in order to protect England's alliance with Spain. Their marriage did produce a daughter named Mary. Wanting a son, however, for dynastic purposes and viewing Catherine's age as problematic, Henry began to look elsewhere. Henry became enamored with Anne Boleyn, one of Catherine's ladies-in-wait. To pursue a marriage with Anne meant that Henry would need to annul his marriage with Catherine. This would require permission from the Pope, but the Pope refused. In January of 1533, King Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn were married. On November 3rd of 1534, Parliament passed the Act of Supremacy. This act made King Henry and all subsequent future English rulers the supreme head of the Church of England. Even though historically, 
the Church of England was based really off a of divorce. Was the new church that Henry VIII established really Protestant? Well, despite his breaks from the Pope, Henry remained quite religiously conservative. Only mild changes were made within the 10 Articles of 1536. Now, within that, Henry did not allow the English priests to marry. He reaffirmed transubstantiation of the Eucharist, which was a Catholic or continuation of Catholic belief. He provided for private masses. He declared celibate vows unbreakable and continued the tradition of oral confession. It was only after Henry's death in 1547 that England became genuinely Protestant. Now, how exactly did the Church of England change under his successors? Well, his son, Edward VI, who was only 10 years of age when he became king, uh, and Edward's advisor, Edward Seymour, uh, began the movement towards the Protestant Reformation. Uh, communion with cup was now allowed, clerics were allowed to marry, and Protestant heresy was outlawed. The Act of Uniformity in 1549 placed the Book of Common Prayer in all churches, and a second Act of Uniformity that was passed in 1522. This one revised the prayer book and taught the justification by faith and the supremacy of the Holy Scripture, and it also denied transubstantiation. The Catholics responded in two major ways to the Lutheran Reformation. The first was known as the Catholic Reformation. The second was known as the Counter-Reformation. Let's start off with the first, the Catholic Reformation, and ask the question, how successful was it? Well, Catholics already had begun attempts to reform their own church before Luther's 95 Theses. In 1512, the Lateran Council was called by Pope Julius II, and whatever the changes were, they were modest at best. The slowness of reforms mostly stemmed from the popes themselves. Many of the popes were interested in their secular lifestyle, or they got caught up dealing with Italian political affairs, including war on the Italian peninsula. Additionally, popes and their bureaucratic assistants feared calling for reforms, having a council to reform the entire church, would eventually result in a loss of power for the pope, a loss of prestige, and perhaps most importantly for the secular popes of the time, the loss of money and revenue. It was Pope Paul III that called together the Council of Trent, which met on and off between the years of 1545 to 1563, and the council itself made very impressive achievements. Number one, although it did not reconcile with the Lutherans, it gave equal validity to the scripture and tradition as sources of religious truth and authority, and it also reaffirmed the Catholic seven sacraments and transubstantiation of the Eucharist. Number two, bishops would now be required to live in their dioceses and visit, at least once or twice, every religious house or church there within. Number three, the council ended pluralism and simony and forbade the selling of indulgences. Number four, every diocesan was now required to establish a seminary for education and training of priests. Number five, People looking to become a member of the clergy were now, were now required to have a quote-unquote genuine calling. And number six, marriages were now required to be made public. For the Catholic Church, the Council of Trent laid a solid foundation for the spiritual renewal of the church and for the enforcement of correction. To raise the moral and intellectual level of the clergy and the people, the Catholic Church, by way of the Catholic Reformation, began to establish new religious orders. Examples of this range from the Theatines who sought to develop reform-minded leaders to the Capuchins whose mission was to return to the ideals of St. Francis 
and live in extreme austerity, simplicity, and poverty. Another order, the Ursuline Order of Nuns, founded by Angela Medici, concentrated exclusively on teaching young girls to re-Christianize society by training future mothers and wives. The Society of Jesus, or the Jesuits, organized by Ignatius of Loyola, taught how to be good Catholics and how to submit to higher religious authority without question. This obedience needed perfect discipline and self-control. The Jesuits committed themselves to going anywhere to help souls. They brought their very modern humanist teachings to the Americas and Asia. Within Europe, the Jesuits brought southern Germany and much of eastern Europe back to Catholicism. The Council of Trent also addressed the subject of art. Catholic art was now to focus on the image of Christ, the Virgin Mary, and the virtues of the saints. The new art was known as Baroque. It was meant as propaganda to attack the religious senses and to win or welcome back people to the church. Baroque promoted devotion and the love of God. It created a sense of drama, motion, and ceaseless striving by way of lavish and wildly active decorations and frescoes. A second way that the Catholics went against the Lutheran Reformation was known as the Counter-Reformation. Well, what exactly was the Counter-Reformation and how successful was it? While well, the Catholic Reformation attempted to create a foundation for the Church in which it reaffirmed its teachings and direction, the Counter-Reformation was intended to counter or go directly against the Protestant actions of the Lutheran Reformation. The Catholic Church, during the Counter-Reformation, created the Holy Office that overlooked the Roman Inquisition. The Holy Office was established, quote, to maintain and defend the integrity of the faith and to examine and prescribe errors and false doctrines. The congregation was entrusted with matters pertaining to faith and morals. They passed judgment on heresy and the application of canonical punishment. The Holy Office also created a list of outlawed books known as the Index of Prohibited Books. This was a list of publications deemed heretical or contrary to morality by the sacred congregation of the Index, and Catholics were forbidden to read them without permission. The complete works of over 550 authors were forbidden. Of course, it included all the works of Luther and Calvin. But interestingly enough, the works of Protestant geographers and botanists were also prohibited. Many rulers initially resisted the Council of Trent's reforms, fearing a revival of papal political power, and by that means, new religious conflicts. However, as the new legislation took hold, parish life revived under a devout and better trained clergy. Our last question to ask today is, was the Protestant Reformation healthy for the Catholic Church? Well, years of power-hungry secular ways had moved the Church away from its founding beliefs. And as papal power and prestige increased, the simple reference for the need of religious reforms was often met with pressure, excommunication, or worse, as in the cases of Jan Hus, Jerome of Prague, or Giacomo Savonarola. When reforms did come, they were only modest at best. The church's inability to reform itself at all levels of the hierarchy eventually cost them a sizable amount of influence and power in Northern and Central Europe. Despite this, the Protestant Reformation must be seen as a healthy blessing in disguise for the new Catholic Church. The Reformation forced the church to reform themselves. The Council of Trent and the subsequent Catholic and Counter-Reformations established the church to reaffirm its belief rid the church of its immoral ways, and help to lay a foundation for its future. Stemming from years of religious disorder, 
The secular church, suffering from indulgences, absenteeism, pluralism, and clerical ignorance, approached a crossroads in 1517. In Germany, a priest named Martin Luther, disillusioned by another round of indulgences and the general direction of the church, spoke out against the church's various transgressions. With the posting of his 95 theses on the Wittenberg church doors, the scholarly Luther challenged the ecclesiastical power of the papacy. He condemned indulgences and promoted salvation by faith alone. With the aid of the new printing press, Luther's views quickly spread like wildfire. The church, first slow to respond, attempted to quiet Luther, eventually leading to his excommunication in 1521. And depending on how you see it, the damage was done or the renewal had begun. In the following years, German princes, whether enticed by the potential for increased financial wealth or felt an honest devotion, would convert to the protesting faith. One by one, other protesting faiths, including the Anabaptists, Calvinists, the Church of England, and the Swiss Reformed Church would spring forth, all with their own dogmatic interpretations. Luther's revolt would also lead to social and political upheaval by way of the peasant revolts. In 1545, the Catholic Church began the approach of reforming itself as evidence in the Council of Trent. At Trent, the Catholics reaffirmed their doctrine. They initiated new educational reforms and support for priests, and the sins of indulgences, pluralism, and absenteeism were banned. The Catholics also countered the Lutheran Reformation. They compiled, and forbid, a list of books that promoted Protestantism and created the holy office that defended their faith, all the while condemning and punishing heresy. Through both councils and war, the German states of the Holy Roman Empire arrived at a division. Protestant princes created the Osberg Confession, which listed their Protestant beliefs, and then united to create the Protestant Alliance, Smokaldic League, in 1521. By 1555, the Peace of Augsburg changed the German battleground of the early Protestant Reformation. German princes were now allowed to choose between the Catholic or Protestant faiths. And although the Peace of Augsburg seemed to be a reasonable resolution that would ease years of religious tension and strife, it proved a starting point for the future wars of religion.